This is One Ogden. I'm John Miles. The Children's Justice Center conducts interviews with victims of abuse with the goal of making sure the police get the information they need and the victim feels safe and comfortable providing it. The Friends of the CJC is the volunteer group that makes sure the program stays funded. Established these in 1990. It was the very first CJC, and the purpose was to facilitate the prosecution of crimes against children. That means that we're going to prepare a case that a, a detective can take to a prosecutor, and we prosecute. And so the original intent of the CJCs was to make sure that those interviews were were done correctly, that there were not police officers in uniform. Uh, we found that we couldn't, it, it was not effective to do child abuse cases within a police department. Mm. When a child would show up, there's police cars, there's guns, there's badges, there's everything going on. So a child automatically is going to believe, well, what, what did I do? Why am I in trouble? Mm. So the original intent when the first CJC was created, and it was Ogden. We have 26 of them now, but ours was the first. And it was to make that setting you know, more comfortable, more inviting almost, but it still was to facilitate the prosecution. So when I was working cases prior to 1990, I was it. So the the child would come in, I'd take him into an interview room that was the same interview room I used for suspects when we were interrogating somebody. It was right in the police department. You would you would interview your child, the, the kid, the victim, and then you would f- call up and try to find a doctor somewhere that could do an examination for you. We found very early on that pediatricians have no clue how to do an examination on a child of sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. And so, but that was my responsibility. And if I wasn't in the office, then the burglary detective would do it or the fraud detective would do it. There was no specialized you know, person to follow through with these cases. Mm. DCFS is always has a part in these cases. And so when I was doing them, I would do my section and then DCFS would do their section and then I would do my section. We never talked. I, I never had any contact with DCFS. Oh. So you're doubling up all your interviews, you're doubling up your medical exams, you're doubling up any resources that you offered. It was a horrible. It was a terrible system (laughs) it was not working and And so having you guys here sort of alleviates the need from the police department to do the interviews makes it more comfortable for the interviewee and make sure all those dots are getting connected yes yeah so we have a multidisciplinary team now called an mdt team and that multidisciplinary team meets every thursday and we go over every case that happened the week prior. And we were doing those in person, which was, was way more effective than what, the way we're doing them now. But it is what it is. And once we get into the new building, then we're going to do all in person. We will not do any more Zoom MDT meetings. Yeah. Every case that is interviewed here at the center will go through that MDT process. And so you've got mental health, you've got school district, you've got the nurses, you've got the prosecutors, you've got all these different players, and they're just throwing stuff out. You know, the school district's a, a great example. That child's going to be in the school setting for eight hours of the day. So if you have a child that's been sexually abused, you're going to see some behavior issues, I'm not there. DCFS is not there. 
But if we have a school, you know, Weaver School District person at our meetings and we have an Ogden School District, then they can go back and say, okay, so-and-so is going to probably have some issues in class. So we need to redirect our efforts and make sure that that child is successful. Hmm. And it's without that community cooperation with everybody at that meeting, all that's missed. Hmm. It still was to facilitate the prosecution. We have a tendency to drift away from that. It's called mission mission drift. Yeah, or yeah. It, your mission changes. It shouldn't. Mm. And so my my job as the director is to make sure that I'm like getting people back in their lanes because they will try to drift off in different directions. Are there other services you provide besides the, the interviewing? There's other services. So um, Primary Children's Hospital is in next door, is in this little building outside. And so once they go through the interview process, then they have access to primary children's to do the to do the medical exam with two nurses. Uh, we have a nurse practitioner and an, an RN, and they've been trained specifically to do those interviews or to do those examinations after the interview's done. So you can't you can't come to the center and say, hey, I you know I'd like my child to be seen by the nurses without going through the interview first. Then we do do a screening, a mental health screening, and we provide some mental health services. But that's that's the services that we provide after the interview. The tendency we have is sometimes like we want to add more mental health services. We want to add mental health services in the schools. We want to help with things outside of our mission. Mm-hmm. And it's just not possible to do that. Yeah. We, we want to do a prevention program. We want to go talk to the schools. You That's not our mission. But they're... You will see that sometimes, like, you guys should be in the schools, you know, talking about child prevention. No, we shouldn't. Mm. We should be at our center doing interviews. (laughs) There's a lot of people with lots of great ideas, so we can do all these things just half-heartedly, or we can do one thing really, really well. Yeah. But that said, I had kind of heard... I have a friend recently went through a situation, teenage daughter. She experienced some abuse long ago. She ended up having to talk to a whole bunch of different people about it. And then it was sort of after the fact that we found out that she could maybe have come down here and just had the one interview and kind of gotten it taken care of. And then it's like a lot more anonymous. So there is a bit of like a a public facing service that you do in that arena, wouldn't you say? Yeah, yeah, there's there's definitely, you know, sometimes you have no control over that. Sometimes those interviews happen. Elizabeth Smart is a great example. I mean, you had Elizabeth Smart that was taken from her house. Her little sister was there, but there was there was over 100 people in the home by the time the police got there. Mm-hmm. And so everybody was asking questions. If you could have taken her little sister directly from the scene right to a CJC, that case would have been solved in a few hours probably. Uh. But we didn't have access to that. And then it already, there was so many people involved that it was really, it would have been really difficult. And it was several months later before that interview actually happened. We, we want to make sure that when that case is reported that we keep all the outside interference away. We bring them to a CJC and we start the process correctly. We don't want people talking to the kids. We don't want people asking them questions. The biggest offender is parents. Mm-hmm. And obviously, you know, obviously that would be difficult. They want to know what happened. Yeah. But if we could get parents to do one thing, that's if your child reports something to you, 
just leave it alone, get it to us, let us talk with them. One of the biggest myths is that kids will not talk to strangers. Totally false. (laughs) It is extremely rare that a child won't sit in there and just tell us the whole story. And we've never met them before. And so, and that's almost the benefit, right? It's a big benefit. We we don't want we meet them the first time in the waiting room, and we talk to them for five minutes, and then we take them right in and we start the interview. Mm. And that process is very regulated, and we have protocols that we follow on how those questions are asked. But if you have outside noise that comes in on those, then you've got to undo some of that and decide, you know, what which is accurate and which is not. It's kind of, this is not an example of child abuse, but if you look at the Idaho case right now with all the murders, with the murders up there, the biggest problem the police had was the outside interference. So they were trying to do their investigation, but when you got people calling in and people doing their own thing, pretty soon the police are just inundated with all this information. Well, you got to, you got to work through all that. Mm. And then it was, you know, if, they they were on the right track and they probably were from the beginning, but it took it takes lots of resources to undo stuff that's been done incorrectly. Mm. So we want to get them here as, as quick as we can, it, within reason. There's sometimes we you know we want to wait a day, but you know we we know which questions to ask and at what time we when we should interview those kids. Yeah. So and it's, and how do people get here? Is it mostly through law enforcement or through the schools? Mm-hmm. So they have to. It has to be referred to us. So you got law enforcement that can refer to us, DCFS, and a medical doctor can. If a medical doctor sees signs of abuse, then they would come to us, and our nurses would take a look real quick. But then they're going to get them into us for the interview. And then we're going to do the interview, then back out for the medical. The reason we do the, the interview first is because that's, that's what we're going to base the medical on, is what they disclose to us. The other big myth, if there's number two, <laughs> it's a big one, is that kids will lie. Oh. Kids don't lie to us, uh-huh. ever. I mean, it, once in a great while, we'll have a child lie. And it's usually a divorce situation where you've got one parent telling the child to lie so that they can get visitation. But we pick that up really fast. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll we'll get into an interview. We can tell that mom has coached the kid or dad's coached the kid, and we'll know that there's there's a motive there, and it's not they weren't sexually abused. It's mm-hmm. it's more the court situation and divorces are. Our forensic interviewers are very very good at figuring that out. If your job largely is to facilitate prosecution, they come to you for an interview. They're concerned that that might lead to having to say talk about it in court or that kind of thing. Like, are those are those concerns that people should have that you know it's, it might lead to more down the road? Well, yeah, sure, sure it will. I mean, in in some cases, I think that we have a real tendency though to to, to not give the child the benefit of the doubt that they're going to be okay. Mm. It's it's the adults we worry about. <laughs> if you look at my my son is a school resource officer. They had a report that there was a, a gun at the school. The report came in about 3.30 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Kids had left. What happened is he starts working on the case. He figures it out. By 10 o'clock that night, he's made an arrest. The kid did have the gun at school. The kid d- did take it home with him. They recovered the gun. They made the arrest, all of that. So what did the school district do? Canceled school the next day. Why did we cancel school the next day? So what we just did is we turned every kid at that school into a victim. The kids are like, okay, there's a gun at school, all right. 
<laughs> but we made them as adults. We all said, you need to be, you know, this should have caused you some trauma. Something has, has got to happen here. When if we would have just said, nothing happened, go to class. And, and we see that the same here is sometimes uh, we will see some pretty severe abuse cases and the child will come in, tell their story, get their medical exam done, skip out the door to their, they're done. Uh-huh. They, they've done what they need to do, but mom and dad are going to say, we need to, we need to make sure you're okay. And the kids are like, well, I am okay. Well, we need to make sure. And they just will not let it go. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and we will always do our therapy if we need to, but some kids don't need it. Hmm. Elizabeth Smart never went to any therapy at all. Hmm. She had a different way of coping with it. And so sometimes we as adults just can't understand how this could happen. Yeah. And, and so we try to deal with that. But we're, we're very limited on what we can do with mental health services. That's very expensive. And it's hard to get into somebody. And so we provide some tra- trauma-based therapy that, that deals just with the event that just happened. We're not going to figure out everything else. We just don't have the resources to do it. And it's not our mission. We look for any issues of, you know, self-harm or something like that. But it's very, it's not a lot. And then we get them into therapy for three or four sessions. And we get back to what we do. And that's to facilitate that prosecution. So it's, it, it's complicated. Yeah. <laughs> it's difficult. It's, 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 it's very difficult. And one of the reasons it's so difficult is you've got law enforcement that is, they're going to go catch a bad guy. They want to th- throw somebody in jail. But half of their job is is to protect the child and make sure the child just gets to tell the story. They get they do get those resources if they need them, and so we only prosecute about twenty percent of our cases. And so you got officers that are like, well, I don't want to do this job because my job is to arrest bad guys, and if I'm just and if I'm not arresting bad guys on every case, I'm going to go do something else. Uh-huh. So to get a good child abuse investigator that's law enforcement, that is a premium if you can find him. That's one of the... So actually, I think he's Weber County. His name's Sean. One of the best. And uh, he goes to my wife. And so I just hear all these stories third hand of just all the terrible stuff you've got to <laughs> he, see. He's the kind I'm talking about. Sean is, is an incredible investigator. But he is... To get a Sean, it comes about every five years you'll get a Sean. Or you'll get a Bill Ashelman, or you get some of these guys, a Stephanie Tatton. It's extremely rare to get those guys because it's just they, they've got to see the whole picture, and that's not why they got into law enforcement. But the, but there is, you know, to to justify some of that, you look at the detective. The detective has the burden of proof, mm-hmm. so that detective has got to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. And so you got DCFS, they, it, it, for them to support a case, they have to have a preponderance of the evidence. So they're tipping the scale 51%. Law enforcement can't do that. They have to show, you know, 90% that this happened. Mm-hmm. And so they're going to keep control. People will say officers are really controlling, and they are. That's why. Because when your case goes south on you and you, you've let evidence get away or somebody's messed it up, the prosecutor's going after the officer. Mm-hmm. It's not going to call up and say DCFS screwed up or the nurses screwed up or somebody else. They're going to say, Detective, why did you let this happen? Yeah. 
So it's just that they are very protective, and they're always the case agent when they get here. Yeah. So what law enforcement says, we do. That was another thing I was wondering, because when somebody comes in and is interviewed here, they're interviewed by a police officer, right? No. Oh, they're not? Oh. <laughs> that's, a, that, that's another change. That's, so that's a big challenge. Um, in Seven years ago, eight years ago, I got a call from the state. The state oversees all the CJCs, but they don't tell us what to do. Hmm. They can suggest. They can help us. They do give us money for support. And they said, we want to try forensic interviewers. We want a non-law enforcement personnel to come in. We want to train them. And we want them to do the interview. Huh. I said, absolutely not. There's no way that I'm letting just a lay person come in and do my interviews for me. Huh. And they're like, Rod, you got, and she's a really close friend of mine down at the state. And she said, Rod, you've got to try this. And I'm like, not, not going to do it. Her name is Tracy Tabbitt. I said, Tracy, I'm not. Law enforcement has to do their own interviews. <laughs> and um, she called me back about every month. She called me back. You know, you ready to do that? And I'm like, Tracy, I'm not going to do that. And huh. she goes, you have to do it. Because if you do it, other people will do it. <laughs> so, and my attitude at that time was, all right, let's just get this over with. It's not going to work. Uh -huh. So let's just do it. I had a receptionist sitting at the front desk. Name was Anna Peely. Anna was sharp. So I walked in and I said, Anna, you want to do interviews? She's like, well, I guess. I guess I could try doing interviews. <laughs> I said, great, Anna, you go down. I'm going to send you down to the state. They're going to train you for three days. You're going to come back. Totally expecting this to fail. And she goes down. She does her, does her three days. She'd never interviewed in her life. She was 21 years old, so she had no life experience whatsoever. And I had to call one of my friends that was coming to the CJC. And I said, hey, the state's got this crazy idea that it will be non-law enforcement will interview will you let on a interview today, your case? And he's like, yeah, we can, we can give it a try. I said, just bear with me and let's get this over with. <laughs> <laughs> and so we brought her, we brought the kid in, we got him in the interview and we gave on a, the, there's a, there's a script that they kind of follow when they do the interview. And I remember her walking in and her hands were just like shaking, like, because you got so you got everybody back there monitoring this saying don't screw this up on this person that's never interviewed in their life uh -huh. and so she went in and she got about halfway through it and the officer looked at me and he goes i'm never doing another interview she's doing all my interviews oh really <laughs> that's what happened huh. and i'm just sitting there going oh my gosh this is way different and it's way better Interesting. I wonder, it, it, it makes me think about the people who, you know, you hear, hear people talking about, like, we need to take certain things off of the police hands and put them into other, like, social services. Do you think it's yeah. related to that? Yeah, uh, in a way, not so much that. It's just, I just think it was so embedded in our system. And, uh -huh. I, and again, it comes back to the officer has to keep control, and they do. But I just think that sometimes we get so caught up in our programs that we're like, okay, we've got this figured out. And then somebody throws something like that in and you're going, wait, that's a change. Mm -hmm. That's not going to work. And so now almost all, an officer still can do it if he wants or, or she wants. They can come in and do their own. But we watch them really close. And if they go outside of protocols or outside of the, the guidelines that we do use, it'll be the last one they do. Mm. And so, and when the interviewer is doing it, the police officer is still usually there. They're just they have to be there. Yeah, they have to monitor. Uh, Anna turned out to be 
exceptional at it. Now she teaches it. She travels in to other states to testify as an expert. She just had this way about her that and smart and quick on her feet turned out to be the best I've ever seen uh -huh. at interviewing kids. That's great. I, I think sometimes we get in this mindset like, you know, we've done this forever. We're going to keep doing it this way. Yeah. <laughs> and I still have challenges with officers saying, I'm, no, I'm going to do my own. And I'm like, go for it. But the bottom line is that they have to defend that interview on the stand. Defense attorneys, they only have one thing to go after, and that's the interview. There's usually no confession. Yeah. There's usually no physical evidence. There's no medical I on see. it. So the only thing they can attack is that interview and that it was done improperly and it wasn't done by best practices. I see. Yeah. And you take it on and put her on the stand or my or Carly or, you know, any of them, Bri, Brianna downstairs, the defense attorney is going to lose uh -huh. because they will just tell you question types, why they ask them in this order, why, why the kid responded that way. And they have so much research in their head. Officers aren't going to do that. Yeah. That's one of the most compelling cases I've heard for this place is like that interview is so key to the whole thing. It, it is the whole case. One downside, I guess, I, I don't have a big as bigger problem with it as some people, but the child still has to testify in court. The interview does not take place of that. We record it. The defense can look at it. The prosecutor can look at it. But when it comes right down to it, the, they have a constitutional right to, to confront their accusers. And so you may put a five-year-old little girl on the stand and there's no getting around that. Mm. Some feel like we shouldn't be doing that. And yeah. I'm like, put her on the stand. She will tell what happened. And it's powerful. Yeah. It's extremely powerful. And defense is going to be hard-pressed to do something with a little five-year-old on the stand. Yeah. I mean, if you want to discredit her, go for it. And the jury is going to hate you. You hate your guts. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. And so a five-year-old can stand, sit on that stand and give wonderful, great answers and uh -huh. very articulate. And they know their stuff. And so I, I, th I think we sometimes, just like the mental health thing, we're like, yeah, they're kids. They can't do this. And they can. Uh, and so do you find yourself in the position often that you sort of have to defend a lot of this stuff? Like that seems like it's got to be difficult. Oh, that's what that's all I do. Yeah. That, and so I am pretty, you know, I'm pretty strong-headed about it. You know, if I get an officer and I said, you want to do your own interview and you don't want to follow the policies and the protocols and the system that we're using right now, then all I need is a letter from your chief or your sheriff saying, we're not going to do it this way. Yeah. And I've never seen one <laughs> right. in, in 20 years. <laughs> I've never everybody come back and go, okay, our sheriffs don't want you to do best practices anymore. Huh. So our, our new building there's always been this idea that the building should look like a house. Yeah. There's no research or evidence that backs that up. And so as we're looking at our building and designing it, we were much more concerned about the flow uh, and the confidentiality yeah. of that. Not so much that the kid's going to walk up and go, wow, this is a really nice house. <laughs> kids don't. So you're seeing across the country that buildings are becoming very comfortable and they're very, the flow of the building is, is what you're concentrating on. Not so much. It has dormers and it has a wraparound porch and it has plants on the, it, it kids uh, don't care, huh. but they do care when they walk through the door and they're the way they're greeted, the way they talk to, and then just feeling safe. Like you said, feeling safe as they walk through and how your employees do that. 
some centers believe we should have dogs in the centers and that the, a dog goes in with a child. There's no evidence that that works. So I want to talk about uh, how do you go about, like, say, fundraising and, and getting out in the community? How much of a priority is that? Well, the fundraising side is important, but that's going to change. When Reed Richards, the father of the CJCs, set these up, he didn't have a problem selling the program to the legislature, but he did have a problem with the legislatures they're like we're not going to provide a facility for you to 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 do what you're doing so reed's like well we got to have a building and so um the legislature said well good luck with that (laughs) so that's when reed went in and created a nonprofit side so the friends of the weber morgan children's justice center joined in and they they provided the facility the building Thank goodness we had these guys. Thank goodness we had the friends boards there to support us. We wouldn't have had anything. But now we've gone back to the legislature and we're like, this isn't right. You guys need to pay for this. Yeah. <laughs> and so we, what I would like to see as we, as we get into the new bill, and, and there's been 13 CJCs switch from nonprofits owning their buildings to their counties owning mm-hmm. it. So it's across the state. It's happening. Well, and so are the wheels in motion for a new building? Yeah, it's yeah, it's it's being built. That's great. Yeah, oh yeah, we got all the plans. And we is there a location the, for it? Yeah, eighteen forty-five Jackson. We've oh. we've dug trees out. Yeah, it's a great location. It's we just finished up the site plans. We're doing our construction drawings right now. We've got a lot of money raised. Nice. Uh, luckily, there was some grants that came up at the time, it, which was a perfect fit. Mm. So, yeah, yeah, we're we're well on our way. We're hoping great. to dig by May. That's great. Let's say the county takes over the funding for everything building related. Yeah. Then the friends are still going to be around to fund like operational costs and that kind of stuff. Is that right? May I? Oh, I <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. her side. A little more. <laughs> yeah. So that's the plan is that we already do. And in, in addition to owning this building, so currently we're in the Becker Mansion in Ogden, um, but it, we've just outgrown it. Uh, as Rod was saying, they can't do all the in-person meetings they would like to. It's just not large enough. But currently the Friends Board owns this building and it has taken a lot of money to anytime you replace windows, even because it's a historic building, you need to get you know, the historically accurate windows. You can't just throw a new window in. Uh, Shingles, gutters, air conditioning, you name it. Uh, We also can't expand on this property. We can do things to the inside of the building, but we can't change the footprint of it. Mm. Um, And the primary children's nurses that he spoke about are out in the carriage house. Uh, So it's, (laughs) it's an interesting location, and it's been great, but there has been problems with it. But in addition to even upkeeping that building, we have been paying for training. We send employees of the CJC to conferences. We uh, do a annual, couple of annual fundraisers. Our big one is the Starry Night Gala. This year's theme is uh, Luau Under the Stars. It's always held pretty much at the Eccles Conference Center. Uh, tickets are on sale now. I'd have to look on our website to see how much those are, but we're selling sponsorships and tables. It's May 6th, Saturday, May 6th, and it's at about, I think, 5 is when the social hour starts, and we have dinner. And I've been to a lot of great fundraisers around Ogden, but honestly, this one, uh, kind of to our detriment, (laughs) is one of the better ones. It's the most work. It's very elaborate. We encourage people to come, you know, dressed with a theme. We have a cocktail hour. We have... 
a silent auction. We have some great trips that we usually auction off during the live auction, during dinner. Um, is it is it somewhat formal? Like, do people dress up but with a theme or come in a grass skirt? You know, <laughs> we we definitely encourage people to dress up, but you will see the whole gamut there. You'll see people in just jeans and a shirt. I think the the most participation. Uh, we had was a rodeo theme one year because people came all the way from the complete cowboy garb to just, you know, a a kind of Western shirt and jeans. Yeah. But yes, we do encourage you to to dress up, but lots of people don't. So we don't want that to ever be a barrier to not Mm. coming. And then what are the other, you have other things you do throughout the year? Yeah. So another thing we do, we used to do it in the summer and we've kind of moved it to the fall. So I think we're planning it for August this year is a ride. Uh, So it's a motorcycle ride. And last year we actually added a fun run, which was a cool thing. One of our board volunteers is really into running. And so he, he got that started. Well, and how does that work? So the having all the bikers go together sort of, I guess, spreads awareness. But then what are they like sponsored or something? There's a, is there a fundraising element to it? Well, they buy their tickets and their rides. They buy T-shirts. Oh, right. We have a silent auction um, at the park where, where everyone has lunch. One year we didn't have it. I think it was because of uh, the pandemic. And we actually got a lot of people disappointed. It's yeah. not our biggest fundraiser. You know, we, we only make a little bit of money on it. But it does raise awareness. And um, the biking community has really just embraced it. And Harley-Davidson over in Riverdale has just been fantastic. Mm. And so how do the Friends, uh, what is the membership of the Friends like? Yeah, so it is a working board. Um, Sometimes that scares people off because it is a big commitment. Most of us have uh, full-time jobs. We meet once a month, and then we meet other times too. Like right now, we're having meetings every other week, just completely dedicated to Starry Night planning. Mm. And so, you know, we expect you to attend the event, buy a ticket, that kind of thing, because Uh we just want people who are interested in the mission and who want to be involved. It took me a long time to realize, like, okay, I'm going to pay $100 to come to a dinner. That's a lot. But I'm looking for like a way to give to CJC. And so that's fine. That's my opportunity. And it's a great time. Everyone that comes just has a great time. We've, um, as a board, bought tables and been to some other fundraisers. And I've looked around and thought, man, we should do it this way because it seems like a lot less work. (laughs) But it's definitely not the big social event that ours is. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm curious about volunteers, though. Do you guys have much volunteer other than like with the friends and helping to plan the be involved in the fundraising? Are there other volunteer opportunities? There's a few smaller opportunities. Lots of times we'll have um, I know there's a company that comes over like in the spring and does yard work around our building. Um, so, and usually the friends board tries to facilitate that, get the volunteers kind of be here to supervise them and help out and kind of arrange that. But certainly Rod and his team also work on that. It's harder. I think Rod can address that, but it's harder to get people to volunteer in the center just because of the nature. Yeah. We have to be really, really careful. So they actually have to pass a background check. And even, even that we don't let them mix with our families. So we will have them file papers, shred papers, Uh do stuff like that. But we're not going to let them interact directly with our families. Mm. So if somebody comes and most of the people I get that want to work, volunteer at the center or college interns, they're ready to graduate. And so people who want to get involved, it's like support the events. If you want to be extra involved, come help maybe plan the events and that kind of stuff with the friends. And then I suppose, you know, just donate money. Yeah. But definitely check out our website to donate. We are a 501c3, the Friends Board, so you can donate that way and get a tax receipt. 
uh, we just started a year ago. Now there's like a subscription service, kind of like the NPR model where you can sign up to give like $20 or $25 a month. So it's not one big chunk if yeah. that's more manageable for your budget. It helps our budget because it's a more consistent cash flow. Ah. And we'd always love board members. Great. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much for both, you know, explaining it all to me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, a lot of stuff. When Reed Richards, the vision that he saw with nothing and to see where we're at today with 26 centers across the entire state of Utah, it's amazing. You know, he's definitely one of my heroes because I, I think of the tens of thousands of kids that went through this process instead of the process I had when I was at the sheriff's office. That was a horrible process. Well, and he's still around here, isn't he? He's still involved. Yeah, he's yeah, yeah. he's. Um, I have an executive committee, and I meet with them once a quarter, and he's the chair of that. Yeah, he's still very involved. I call him all the time and just run stuff past him because he's so knowledgeable about legislature and county attorney. He was the county attorney, and yeah. and so he's just invaluable to have around just for questions, yeah. if nothing else. Yeah. He wants to retire, but nobody will let him. <laughs> Look, I get it. If you're the type of person to stay through the end of the episode, you probably already know about our Youth Futures Fun Drive, where you can drop off gift cards for fun things to do around town to one of six local businesses by April 15th, and then they'll send it along to Youth Futures for you. So I'm not even going to bother reminding you. But have you considered asking your friends to donate? Or maybe going out on the street with one of those signs that people spin around and then you can let people know that they still have an opportunity to donate to Youth Futures. So, there's that. 